Good morning. Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. Where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Does anybody know who said that? Who said those words? Peter. John chapter 6, Jesus has just fed the 5,000 and these people are then flocking to him the next day because they want another free meal. And Jesus explains to them why they want food and not the bread that comes from heaven. He preaches that enormous crowd down to these 12 men. It's just him and the 12 and he says to them, you don't want to go away also, do you? And Peter says, Lord, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. They've heard this, what, what in the, the minds of the world, as demonstrated by the fact that this entire crowd is left, they hear these words from Jesus that everybody understands to be extremely offensive, that he is the only way to be saved. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And Peter says, these are words of eternal life. And now this same Peter has, has written this, this wonderful letter that God has given us the pleasure of studying these past eight months. We come to the close of it this morning. And we will consider words of eternal life in these last few verses. Please stand with me. And we'll, we'll read verses 12 through 14 and then pray and ask for the Lord's help. First Peter 5, beginning in verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. Your kindness that has come to us in so many ways. Most obviously and fully in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word that you've given to us and that we live in a day and in a place where we are able to have your word in our own tongue in front of us. We're able to gather together and read it together every week and consider it together. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to not take your grace for granted in these things. That we would cherish it and that this morning as we consider these last few verses that your Holy Spirit would do once again what he always does and that is that he would help us to understand your word and apply it rightly. We pray, Lord, that you would take the message of 1 Peter and, and once again work it into our minds and hearts. Help us to be faithful. Help us to endure the testing of these difficult days until the Lord Jesus returns. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Please be seated. Have you ever thought about how many of the things that we say, we say just because that's what you're supposed to say? We say things without really thinking about it, and, and this shows up frequently or possibly most often in our greetings and in our farewells. We, we greet people typically, and you've probably said this several times this morning, how are you? Now, we don't really mean tell me how you're doing. And, and it's obvious because when, when somebody actually tells you how, you're, how they're doing, you will often report to somebody else and ask so-and-so how they were doing. And they told me, like, you know, it's not exactly what I was looking for, but you asked the question. You said words that you didn't really mean, right? I mean, we, we do this just because it's a colloquialism. We say, how are you doing? We do this with, with farewells as, as well. One thing that we say a lot, and this, this puzzles me, drive safely. Anybody said that recently? Somebody's leaving your house? Drive safely. I probably know two people who really need to hear that anytime <laughs> they get into the car. But for most people, I think we're responsible when we get behind the wheel of a car. We drive safely as a matter of course. We, we want to live. But we say it. Drive safely. Some people, some people are very thoughtful with their greetings and with their farewells. My grandfather was one of those people. He said the same thing to our family every time someone left his home. But the fact that it was always the same thing did not make it any less thoughtful. He always said to us as we were leaving his house, remember who you are and where you're from. Remember who you are and where you're from. And, and by that he meant, don't forget, you don't belong to you. You don't just represent you. You belong to something greater and you represent something greater than yourself Live accordingly as you leave this place. Now, for my grandfather, that was both goodbye and a reminder of everything that he taught us with his life. Now, Peter is doing the same thing here in these last few verses. He is saying goodbye. He is giving the last few things, and he's saying what we might receive as, or these are just colloquialisms. These are just, this is just what you say at the end of a letter in the, in the first century to people in, in Asia Minor. But Peter is thoughtful in the things that he says. He has done a lot of teaching in this letter. He, he wrote it to elect exiles, believers like us, chosen by God, living in a land that is not their home, a land that's hostile to to them because of their association with Jesus Christ. And as Jesus told Peter and his disciples, the world's hatred for him was not going to be confined to just him, but the world's going to hate them as well. The world hated Jesus, and so the world will hate those who are associated with Jesus. And so the world mistreats us as they mistreated Jesus. The world's design under the direction of the evil one is to cause us to abandon the faith, to cave in various degrees. As, as we've seen, the, the kind of suffering encountered by the original readers of this letter 
is not at all different from that experienced by faithful believers in 21st century America. So we, like the believers in Asia Minor who originally received this letter, our faith is being tested. And so Peter has written this letter to deliver a, a very concise message. Endure the testing of your faith by setting your hope on the coming salvation and by entrusting your souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, the heart of the letter is, is complete. We, we have, we've made it through the heart of the letter. We've come to the part that we might consider incidental throwaway verses. We find verses like these at the end of, of many of the New Testament epistles where, where the apostles deal with matters that we might consider to be just of personal nature, things that pertain only to them or only to the people that, that they mention there. But our temptation, our temptation to skip over those verses or to pay them little attention is itself a disregard of the Scriptures. Listen to 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All Scripture. The genealogies that we find littered throughout the Bible these seemingly tedious descriptions of the various rituals and sacrifices in Leviticus, the, the instructions for the building of the tabernacle, and the last few verses of these New Testament epistles are Scripture and are therefore breathed out by God and profitable for, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that we may be complete. Equipped for every good work. So we don't ignore any book of the Bible, nor do we ignore any verse of any particular book of the Bible. It may seem that Peter is, is merely saying farewell here, and in a sense he is, but he is also taking a final opportunity to encourage us to endure. So he points back to what he has already written. This morning, we're, we will spend the bulk of our time considering three truths de derived from verse 12, and then we will close by gleaning some wonderful light from the final two verses. First of all, the, the, the grace of God in Christ is the elect exile's foundation. That's the first point in your notes. The grace of God in Christ is the elect exile's foundation. Verse 12 again, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Now, Silvanus is likely the same Silvanus who traveled with Paul and who is mentioned in 2 Corinthians 1.19 and 1 Thessalonians 1.1 and 2 Thessalonians 1.1. And it's likely that Silvanus is the one who delivered this letter to the, these believers in Asia Minor, rather than being the secretary to whom Peter dictated the letter. He, he is likely the delivery boy, not the secretary, okay? And Peter wants them to know they can trust Sylvanus because Sylvanus is going to be the one who is 
who is reporting on how Peter is doing. He's not just going to deliver the letter. He's also going to tell everybody, look, here's what's going on with Peter. Here are his personal circumstances. And so Peter wants them to know, look, you can trust Silvanus. He's a good dude. We see, we see Paul doing this in his letters with, with, with Timothy and Epaphras and others. Now, with the next part of the verse, Peter summarizes the entire letter. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. I want to, I want to pay special attention to those two participles, exhorting and declaring. Exhorting which is that he has called them to live in a certain way. He's exhorted them, live in a particular way, and declaring. He, he's taught them truth, which, which he characterizes here as the true grace of God. Now, we're going to consider the latter of those two first, all right? For Peter to declare the true grace of God is for him to teach them or, or to remind them of God's gracious work in Christ on their behalf. You, you, you can identify which portions of the letter contain that teaching by looking at the verbs used. Greek grammar people call these kinds of verbs indicative verbs. We, we would call them statements. Okay, There are numerous sections where we find Peter making statements about God's work in Christ on our behalf. And if you're taking notes, you might want to write these sections down. There, there are places where we find large concentrations of these kinds of verbs, and they should be clues to us that we're being taught things here. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, a lot of indicative verbs there, a lot of statements, truths about what God has done in Christ on our behalf. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. 21 through 25, and chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. And if you were to take the time this afternoon to go back and read through those, those portions, you'll be reminded of all of these, these things that Peter has reminded us about over these last few months. I'd like to review some of the main themes that, that Peter teaches us and to which he is now pointing under the banner of the true grace of God. We think back over these last few months, we, 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 can, we can put a lot of these indicatives into one category. He, he has emphasized God's sovereignty over all things, including our salvation and sufferings. Peter has emphasized God's sovereignty over all things, including our salvation and our suffering. This begins at the very beginning of the letter. He, he has called us elect in the very first verse of the letter. We're going to see a reference to election at the end of the letter here in, in, in a little bit. We are elect. That is, we're chosen of God. In one three, he teaches that God has caused us to be born again. It's by his sovereign power that we have become to be in Christ. In one five, he teaches that it's by God's sovereign power that we remain in the faith. So he, he brings us into Christ, and by his sovereign power, he keeps us there. This is worth an amen. In 1, verses 10 through 12, he describes how all of the work of God in Christ was predicted beforehand by the Old Testament prophets, demonstrating that God has been planning this from long ago, and the fact that it has now happened shows God is working out his plan. Why might that be helpful to people who are suffering at the present time? 
We know God is in control. He's working out his plan. And just as he has always worked out his plan, he's going to continue to work out his plan. In 2.9, he calls us a chosen race. God has called us and saved us for his purpose that we would proclaim his excellencies. There are references to our suffering according to the will of God in, in 3.17 and 4.19. So God is sovereign over all things, including our salvation and our sufferings. Again, how does, how does that kind of, of, of truth, how does that help the elect exile? It, remind, it reminds us that God has a purpose for everything and he can be trusted. And, and trusting God is an essential component of our ability to endure during the age. So that's the first thing that Peter has, has taught us over and over and over. God is sovereign over absolutely everything, including your salvation and your suffering. Second, he's emphasized our inheritance over and over. He's emphasized our inheritance, which is finally received when the Lord Jesus returns. And he, he speaks of this inheritance in, in the very beginning as well. Back in 140, he talks about it in glowing terms. You have this inheritance. It's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Can't be taxed away from you. No, nobody could touch this thing. In, in 1.5, he writes about our being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's coming. We're just waiting for it. 1.9, he speaks about the, the power and glory and honor that will be ours at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He, he gives us idea over and over and over that when Jesus comes, he's going to share all of this with us. In 1.13, he writes about the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there is this inheritance that's ours. It's being kept in heaven for us. We have this eternal hope, something to cling to, something to look forward to, something to count on during the sufferings of this life. It's like a bedrock on which we stand. We have this hope. A third thing that he emphasizes repeatedly is the sufferings of Christ and their benefit to us. The sufferings of Christ and their benefit to us. This is not unrelated to the first two things that I've mentioned. God's sovereignty and our inheritance. Christ's sufferings on our behalf come about as a result of God's sovereign plan. And Christ's sufferings on our behalf are the basis of our inheritance and our eternal hope. The redemption that we have in Christ is our bedrock. The salvation of our souls comes, we find this in, in 111, the salvation of our souls comes by the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In 118 and 19, he said, we were ransomed. We were ransomed with what? We, we sang about this morning, about it this morning. We read about it. Not, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In 224, he reminds us that he himself, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might what? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we've been healed. We were straying like sheep, but now we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. In 3.18, he reminds us that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. We, we were dead in our sin, 
But the sovereign plan of God moved events in such a way that Christ redeemed us. He ransomed us by, by, by being offered as a sacrifice for our sins. And now there's this just ridiculous truth that, that characterizes us. His righteousness became our righteousness. His resurrection became our resurrection. And, and this is a blessed too. We don't think of it as, as a blessing often, but it is a blessing. His sufferings become our sufferings. This is the true grace of God, Peter teaches. This is the true grace of God. Now, why would Peter emphasize these truths? That God's gracious work in Christ on our behalf. Why would he give these things to us if really all he wants is for us to just endure? Why not just write us a really quick letter, just endure the testing of your faith? Why give these truths? Because these truths are our foundation during this difficult age. They demonstrate God's plan for us and his power at work in us both of which indicate a continued mission for us. We, we have an ongoing mission as believers, which brings us to the next point in your notes. To remain faithful in Christ is the elect exile's calling. To remain faithful in Christ is the elect exile's calling. He writes, I, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and declaring to you that this is the true grace of God. We've just discussed how Peter has declared that the grace of God by what we would call these indicative sections of the letter, these statements of truth. But Peter has also exhorted us in the letter in the form of encouragements and commands. Now, we, we could say that the main objective of this letter, that is what, what Peter really wants to eventuate from his writing here, could be found in one phrase in 1-7. Chapter 1, verse 7, Peter is interested in the tested genuineness of our faith. Our faith is being tested. We, we must endure. That's what Peter wants. We, we, we want to endure that testing of faith and come out on the other side, having our faith shown to be genuine, which Peter says will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, to that end, to, to, to the coming of our endurance, or so that we will endure, he's emphasized several imperatives, or groups of imperatives, we might say, repeatedly. I want to give you four of those groups of imperatives. The first of those is, he's exhorted us to be sober-minded, He's exhorted us to be sober-minded. And that simply means he, he wants us to be mentally and spiritually on our toes, prepared for suffering. And we've seen this numerous places. In 113, he said, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. 4-7, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 5-8, we saw this last week. Be sober-minded, be watchful. In 4.1, he said, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. 4.12, 
Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as if something strange is happening to you. Think rightly about what's going on around you. Expect these things. Keep your eyes open because of the danger, the spiritual danger that is posed by persecution. Understand what is going on. The enemy wants to cause you to fall away. And so he says over and over, be sober minded. Keep your wits about you mentally and spiritually. Second, he's exhorted us to keep our eyes on the prize. He's exhorted us to keep our eyes on the prize. And this goes back to that, that wonderful inheritance that he's said so much about. In one thirteen, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and goes on and on over and over about the day of Christ's return and that inheritance. The knowledge of that glorious future helps us to endure present temporary difficulty. You know, it, it, is, it really is a, a precious thing when we feel ourselves downtrodden because of the mistreatment of the world. But to then have the scriptures put our circumstances into eternal perspective, right? Because we, we tend to look at our, our troubles and particularly how people bring mistreatment upon us because of our association with Jesus Christ. And that's all we could see is the, the mistreatment. Then the scriptures come along and they put in front of us eternal perspective. Yes, we're suffering. Yes, we are mistreated. And we're misunderstood. But, Peter says, we are the chosen of God. We are a kingdom of priests. Tasked with this unbelievable privilege of offering spiritual sacrifices to Almighty God, acceptable to Him through Jesus Christ, the eternal Son. We, we, we have this glorious privilege of proclaiming the excellencies of Almighty God who called us out of darkness into His glorious light. And though our, our present might be gloomy and though, though we struggle in moments of darkness, our, our future isn't merely bright. You know, we, we use that phrase a lot. It's kind of a trick. Oh, the future is so bright. Listen, y'all, that is like the, the, the understatement of the century. That's the understatement of history to say that for the future, the, for, for the believer, their future is bright. Our conception of brightness is dictated by our experience of both natural and artificial, artificial light. You know what kind of brightness we're going to enjoy on the last day? Isaiah 60 and Zechariah 14 and Revelation 22 teach that in the new heaven and new earth, we're going to enjoy a brightness that we've never conceived of before because there's no heaven. I mean, there's, there's no moon. There's no, there, there's no sun giving us light. We will see by the glory of what? God himself will be our light. Unbelievable. Is that some helpful perspective in the darkness of, of this day? There will be no sun or moon. There will be no need for them. Our source of light will be his presence. And when I think about that, I'm reminded of David's words in, in Psalm 16, where he says, indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What great value there is in keeping our eyes on the great eternal prize. And Peter knows this, and so he's called us to do it. So that we might endure the testing of our faith. This temporary testing of our faith. 
A third thing that he has exhorted over and over, he's, he's exhorted us to live holy lives. Live holy lives. One fifteen reads, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. One twenty two, he he shades that a little bit by calling us to a particular kind of love. He says, Having purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. In 2.13, he says, be subject to the Lord's sake for every human institution. Every imperative in this book we could think of as a form of being holy as the Lord himself is holy. The exhortation to be holy is not disconnected from Christ's work on our behalf. It, It flows directly from Christ's work on our behalf. And it's the most direct evidence of the genuineness of our faith. We've, we've already considered some of the truths of the gospel in summary form this morning. We were, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but our holy creator God, because of his great love and mercy, he sent Jesus Christ to deliver us from sin by dying on the cross in our place and rising from the dead. But now here's what I want you to think about in, in terms of our call to be holy then, okay? Jesus delivered us Not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. Think about what we were prior to Christ saving us. We were formerly rebels against God. We had a condition of the heart that that, that moved us to hate him and to hate one another. But God's work in Christ on our behalf... It doesn't merely spare us eternal wrath in hell. Certainly it does that. But it also transforms us from the inside out. The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel speak to the fact that we have this new covenant in Jesus Christ. And part of that covenant is that he gives us new hearts. Hearts that are filled with the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit causes us to walk in obedience The gospel is not only about our being saved from the wrath to come. It is also about our being saved from hating God. We're saved from that. And we're saved unto loving God and being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 it says, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. When, when Jesus died, all those joined to him died as well. So if, if you are in Christ, You have died with Christ. You've died to sin and you've died to self. Romans 6.11 then says, consider yourself dead to sin. Because you are. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Galatians 6.14 has this similar idea. The the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. So my life in Christ has changed my relationship with the world and sin and self because in order to enjoy life with him, I had to die with him. So I've died to all of these things. And there in 2 Corinthians 5.15, 
Paul gives the great trajectory of the gospel in the life of the believer. Jesus died for all. Why? That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We proclaim a gospel that transforms sinners into saints, rebels into holy people. So what will it look like then if our faith is genuine? This kind of faith that, that Peter wants us so badly to have, the kind of faith that endures the testing of this age, what does that faith look like? If the gospel transforms people, what does that faith look like? If our faith is genuine, it will continue on the trajectory of the gospel, which means we will constantly grow in holiness. Peter desires that we would prove the truthfulness of the gospel with our lives. So we, we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we do that not just with our words, but we do that with our works, with, with our lives, with our holiness. Living obediently is an essential, essential component of our enduring the testing of faith. It demonstrates the genuineness of our trust in him. And that's the reason for all of these commands toward holiness. There's, there's a fourth group of exhortations that we find in the book over and over. Peter has exhorted us to fear and trust God. Fear and trust God. And here are a few references. 419. Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will. And trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 117. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. 2.17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. 5.6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting your anxieties on him. Now, if we, if we would endure to the end, we must continue to trust. Part, part of passing the testing of our faith is continuing in the faith itself. And so we're commanded over and over to trust him during this difficult time. And, and fear of God that we've been called to numerous times, both explicitly and implicitly, fearing God, this reverent awe of him, it, pre it prevents us from giving in to the temptation to please man as, as we come under all this pressure from the world. Don't give in to, the, to, the, to fear of man. Don't give in to that pressure to conform to the ways of this world. That great theme verse in 419, it's instructive. Entrust your souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And remember the value of thinking of God as creator in this context. Remember the fact that God is creator speaks not just to the fact that he has made everything, but that he owns everything. He sustains everything. And he is worthy of all worship and allegiance. So trust him as you suffer, remembering all that he's done for you in Christ to secure your eternal future and remembering all that will be suffered by those who are persecuting you. Trust this faithful creator while doing good. To remain faithful in Christ, this is the elect exile's calling. This, this is what we do in this life as we seek to, to pass that testing of our faith. Now, if you take these first two points, that the, the, the grace of God is our foundation and our calling is to remain faithful in Christ. You put those two things together, join them together, you end up with our third point. The third point in your notes. 
the elect exile must stand in the grace of God. The elect exile must stand in the grace of God. Three words there. The next three words in verse 12. Stand in it. Stand in it. Stand in what? The true grace of God. Stand in the true grace of God, which is how Peter encapsulates the teaching of the entire letter. Take the truth of this letter and stand there. Hold fast to all of these statements of God's work in Christ on your behalf and obey the imperatives. We, we could think of this command as an exhortation to now endure based upon the truth of what God has done for us in Christ. I, I already mentioned regarding the command to be holy that it's, it's directly tied to the gospel. All the imperatives in the letter, all of them are connected to the indicatives. You, you'll hear theologians say occasionally phrases like, the, the imperative is founded on the indicative. Has anybody ever heard anything like that? The imperative is founded on the indicative. This is very clear in Paul's letters, how, how this works. Because, because Paul typically will organize his letters in such a way that he first, in those first few chapters of his letter, he'll teach what is true of us in Christ. And then there's a pivot toward the end of his letter where he then teaches how we should live in light of that truth. Here's what's true of you. Now here's how you should live in light of what's true of you. Here's your identity because of the gospel. And now here's the lifestyle that goes with that identity. Peter has done the same thing in this letter. He's just not organized it exactly the way Paul typically does. He has mixed the indicatives together with the imperatives. I'd like to give you three ways, three ways in which the indicatives are the foundation of the imperatives, or maybe a, a, a non-grammar nerdy way to say it would, would be this. Three ways that grace is the foundation on which we stand. Three ways in which grace is the foundation on which we stand. The first, we've, we've already considered briefly, so I, I won't spend much time on it, but first, the, the exile's transformation is a result of the gospel. The exile's transformation is a result of the gospel. An obedient life is the logical trajectory of, of the gospel. The gospel changes people. That's, that's, what we, that's what we teach when we share it, if we're sharing it faithfully. When people are united to Jesus Christ by faith, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them inevitably conforms them to his image. If we believe the gospel, we will be changed by it. So there's, there's, there's a, a, a logical connection between the indicatives or the, the things that God has done for us in Christ and then this lifestyle that comes from it. The lifestyle is a result of what has happened to us through Jesus Christ. Second, the elect, elect exile's lifestyle is an essential part of his proclamation of the gospel. The elect exile's lifestyle is an essential part of his proclamation of the gospel. Emulating the life of Jesus Christ, being like him as a testimony to the life-changing character of the gospel, that is the reason for our obedience. We, we commend the gospel to others. We, we demonstrate its truthfulness by living a life that shows transformation. In fact, it's counterproductive to the spread of the gospel. 
It's counterproductive to the, the growth of the kingdom for us to proclaim a gospel of transformation while living a life of ungodliness. And this was Paul's concern in, in the, the book of Titus. There were, there were people proclaiming the gospel, living ungodly lives. And of those people, he, sa- he said, they claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're saying one thing with their words and a different thing with their lives. We... As elect exiles, we must say the same thing with our lives that we say with our mouths. A third connection or a third way that grace is the foundation on which we stand. The elect exile's endurance, it's empowered by the gospel. Grace empowers our endurance. Christ gives the grace to do what he commands. Remember that wonderful text from last week. 510, how did Peter refer to God? He called him the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. The Holy Spirit who empowered the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry, same Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, empowering us for our earthly ministry. So do do you see how grace is the foundation of, On which we stand. Peter has written. I have declared to you. This is the the grace of God. I've declared to you. This is the true grace of God. That is er everything that we are. Everything that we have. Is a gift of God's unmerited favor. Everything that we do. That is the things that we're commanded to do. Everything that we do. Everything that we endure. Is a result of. Is motivated by. Is empowered by. This unmerited favor of God. You you cannot separate the indicatives from the imperatives. You cannot separate the command to stand from the ground on which we must stand. This is the true grace of God. Stand in it. Now, in these last few minutes, let's consider these these final two verses. These are not throwaway verses. Peter, in, in these last two verses, he is littering once again themes that he has already Addressed in the letter. Look at verses 13 and 14. She who was at Babylon. Who was likewise chosen. Sends you greetings. And so does Mark my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. These verses echo. Themes like parting reminders. Peter is. 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 Scattering through these these words, hey, don't forget these things that I've already told you. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen. Now, who who is that that he is referring to? The general consensus is that Peter is referring to the church at large. You'll remember from a few weeks ago when Pastor Jason opened his series on Second John, the the apostle there addresses the elect lady. And Pastor Jason explained to us that the elect lady refers to the the church. Well, same thing here. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, is a reference to the church at large. Now, the the reference to to Babylon, with that, Peter is, is one more time, he's reaching back into the Old Testament and grabbing language that he might apply to the New Testament church. The people of Judah in the Old Testament, they were taken captive into Babylon. 
And Peter has referred to believers in this age as exiles. And so Babylon here is simply Peter taking Old Testament language and applying it to New Testament believers that they're not literally in Babylon, they're in Rome. Rome is the place of the church's exile during the day of Peter. So his intent, again, is just to remind us we are exiles in a place that is not our home. Don't forget, you are elect exiles. Now, the, the, the statement as a whole, that the, the rest of the church, the rest of the church through, throughout the world is greeting you, believers in Asia Minor. This is just a reminder of what Peter said in previous verses, that we are not alone in our struggle as elect exiles. Similar things are being suffered by believers throughout the world. Now, apparently, those believers throughout the world, they take that very seriously in that they are, they are reaching out through Peter to the believers of Asia Minor to greet them. And, and the next little part indicates that a greeting for a believer, this, this is not a formality. This is not just a, hey, how you doing? This is not, not a drive safely. This is a, we love you. In, in, in a sense, offering them love and support. We join with you in the Lord Jesus in our struggle in this age to remain faithful to him. He says, they greet you, they greet you. Then in verse 14, he commands that the church would greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, there, there's, a, there's a wise guy in our congregation right now who recently questioned the authenticity of my faith because he has never seen me going around and kissing everybody in the congregation as Peter has commanded here so obviously. And while we would never want to champion disobedience in an elder, I'm confident that uh, not only my wife, but everyone else in the room here is thankful for my obstinance on this matter. <laughs> Peter, what does he really want here? He's not interested in creating a, 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 a legalistic ritual. He's simply commanding a culturally appropriate expression of Godly affection among the saints. A culturally appropriate expression of godly affection among the saints. In the modern day United States, we might say a handshake. But more likely a hug. My condolences to Liz Mealy. Liz in here? Love one another and show it is the idea. Love one another and show it. Endurance is, is, is a team sport. And so Peter has said, look, these, these other believers outside your local community, they are loving you inside the local church. Love one another. Demonstrate genuine affection for one another. We are all the entire body of Christ. We're all in this together. And, and that also is the value that I find in this mention of Mark in verse 13. He likely is the John Mark that was also a traveling companion of Paul's at various times in his ministry. I won't give a detailed history of their relationship, but just the mention of his name. If you know the history of John Mark and of Paul, you know that just the mention of his name is a reminder of the necessity both of serving the Lord together and of forgiveness and reconciliation as we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, Peter writes, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, the opening that we studied in this letter was months ago. Peter's opening greeting was, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
It is likely not a coincidence that now Peter closes with grace and peace. Once again in the close, he's brought, he's brought peace in front of us. Explicitly wishing peace to all Christians. Peace. Just one of the most valued commodities in, in a world of, of pain and turmoil. And peace is something that, that people of this world, believers and unbelievers alike, want so badly and, and seek it in all kinds of false refuges and, and false gods. But listen, y'all, the, the only reason that we can have peace, that is that we can have a state of the heart and soul that says, all is well with me. The only reason that an elect exile can say that is because we are in Christ, as Peter has said here. Peace to all those who are in Christ. That's the only reason. By faith, we have been joined to him. And, and that faith in Christ being joined to Jesus, he has, as Peter has taught us, he has brought us to God. We formerly were, were enemies with God. Now we've been brought back to him. There's no more enmity, but we have, we have peace. And not just peace, but we've been adopted into his family. Therefore, we are able to have tranquil hearts in the midst of turbulence because there is no enmity between us and God. Listen again to, to how Paul writes these same ideas in Romans chapter 5. We began the service with this passage, Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. You can hear in Paul's writings the same themes that we have seen in 1 Peter. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, we have spent eight months studying this letter. If we think back over those eight months, if over the course of, of that time you have been encouraged Convicted, challenged, enlightened, corrected, stirred up, or otherwise helped by these Holy Spirit-inspired words of Peter. Would you raise your hand? The Word of God is timely, it is timeless, and it is powerful. And, and we have just spent eight months gazing at things into which angels long to look. Praise the Lord. And may we continue to do so until he comes. Now, once again, after, after I pray in a moment and before we sing, we're going to spend a few moments in silence before the Lord, thinking about what we have heard and, and praying 
about how He would have us to respond. So, let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you've united us to the Lord Jesus by faith, how he has reconciled us to you, and that now we are able to call you Father. We thank you, Father, for your tremendous grace that has been displayed before us in this wonderful letter, and we pray now that by that grace we would stand faithful during this difficult time as the world buffets us because of our faithfulness to Jesus, our association with Him, our verbal proclamation and our lifestyle proclamation. As we are mistreated and maligned and misunderstood, Lord, help us to stand on Your grace. All that You have done for us in Christ. Lord, as as we move on from 1 Peter, we pray that it would not move on from our hearts and minds. We pray that your Holy Spirit, who wrote these words, and who lives in our hearts, that he would continuously press these truths upon our hearts and minds and consciences in the days to come. We ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.